Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This episode is about The Man in the High Castle, a novel by Philip K. Dick. So this is the second of a kind of mini-series I'm doing within Utopian Horizons on the on the novels of Philip K. Dick. The first one I did was on Time Out of Joint, so you can go back to listen to that if, you, if you've missed it. Um, this one is on The Man in the High Castle, published in 1962, certainly one of... Philip K. Dick's best-known novels, uh, most successful novels as well. Before I go on to talking about the book, I haven't uh, talked about my Patreon in a while, so I'm going to be annoying and talk about that briefly. If you like what I'm doing with this podcast and want to support me and help me to continue to do it, you can support me at patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. When I started the Patreon, I didn't have any goals or awards or anything uh, on there. I've added some goals on there now. I thought maybe people could see what uh, I want to try and do then you know that might be helpful one of the things I've put on there is you know I thought it might be cool to have a website with a forum on where maybe people could go and talk about the episodes and some ideas around utopia stuff they'd like to see on future episodes um, I don't know whether people actually like that idea or not but I'll find out if any of you decide to give me any money I've also added uh, goals for you know, once I reach a certain level then I'll guarantee a certain amount of episodes per year I don't know whether that's a good idea because quite often um, being able to do episodes depends on guests rather than just me. But part of the reason I wanted to do the Patreon was I want to be able to do this more regularly and put out more episodes. So I kind of set that in stone. I haven't put any rewards on there despite everyone tells you that like that's the thing you need to do to get Patreon subscribers and that Patreon tells you that. But the type of stuff I could do, you know, I thought about I thought, you know, people could choose a, a subject they want an episode on, but if you just email me or tweet me and tell me that you want me to cover something, I'll do that anyway. So I think it would be a bit dishonest of me to try and make people pay for that, given that I'll just do it for free. I've already said I'll do it for free, so it didn't feel right to do that. Another thing that people do is they do extra episodes that they lock off that are only for Patreon subscribers. I suppose I could have done something like this with this uh, Philip K. Dick sort of miniseries, but I've already started doing it anyway, so I'm not going to try and make people pay for it now. So, so yeah, there's no rewards on there at the moment. I'm open to adding rewards on there. I'm open to anything. If anybody's got any ideas for stuff they think, well, if I was a Patreon subscriber, I would want this, or I'd be happy to subscribe if I could get this or this, then, yeah, by all means, tell me. Tweet me at Utopian Horizons. Email me, utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. And let me know, and I'm open to adding anything that people might like to see on there. If you can't afford to support me financially or don't want to, that's fine. Instead, what would be helpful is if you could recommend this podcast to someone you know who you think might like it, or give me a review on iTunes or whatever you used to listen to this, that would be very helpful as well. Okay, so enough of that, on to the book. So as I mentioned, The Man in High Castle is, was published in 1962, it's set at the time. It's an alternative history where Japan and Germany won World War Two, and set in the US. Um, Germany has control of, of the East Coast, Japan has control of the West Coast, and there's a, a neutral buffer zone in, in the Rocky Mountains. Now, in some ways, this novel is untypical of Philip K. Dick's output in that it's relatively realistic, so that there are sci-fi elements there, but they're not in any way crucial to the plot 
there's off-world colonization of Mars and, and the moon is mentioned, but that's kind of like a background detail that's never de- depicted. It's never talked about in any significant detail and it's not relevant to what happens in the book at all, really. The intro of the edition of the novel that I've got points out that this book was written after a period where Philip K. Dick tried to write realist novels. Um, so this was just after Time Out of Joint, actually, which we which I covered in the previous episode. He wrote four straight realist novels. I think only one of those was published during his lifetime. I don't think any of them were published um, at the time. But um, that perhaps accounts for this realist approach that he's taken. He'd gone straight off of writing those realist, realist novels into this. And I think there is an argument to be made that there's more depth to these characters and, and more... Uh, character development perhaps than you typically see in a Philip K. Dick novel so that's not to say that it's better I tend to prefer the the sci-fi stuff actually and I think it's stronger in other aspects if if weaker in in others but certainly this book is probably stronger in that aspect in terms of characterization and so on Hopefully some of you will have read the book. Uh, You may not have read it for a long time. Also, there may be people who are listening despite having not read the book. So I'm going to have to attempt a brief plot summary. The book is set in the Japanese-controlled areas of America and the neutral rocky zones. There's a racial hierarchy that exists everywhere. Americans, as the losers of the war, are part of that. In the terms of the novel, they're still considered above black people and Chinese. But despite there being this, this hierarchy everywhere, Japan is depicted in the book as being not as bad as the Nazi-controlled areas. It's less oppressive. They don't approve of the Nazis' view of Jews and what they've done to Jews. Within this world, the Nazis have extended the Holocaust to Africa. They've basically wiped out the population of Africa. So it's not hard to be slightly better than that. And within the terms of the book, the Japanese are depicted as being less oppressive and the Japanese-controlled area slightly less worse for Americans and, and others to live in. There are four main characters, I would say, and there's four main plot lines to go along with that. So I'll just briefly take you through those. So there's Frank Frink. He is a Jew who's changed his name to avoid persecution, originally came from Europe. He's recently split up from his wife and he works at a workshop where what they do is they produce fake American antiques, which is quite an important part of the story. So I'll talk more about it in a minute. But he is persuaded by a co-worker to start a business making original American jewellery. Contemporary American art doesn't exist within this world uh, because as the loser of the war, it's kind of an inferior culture. As an aside, this thing of having a creator or at least someone who's fighting against degradation in some way is very common. That's something we're going to see a lot in Philip K. Dick's novels. In this case, obviously, we've got uh, Frank Freak making jewellery, but he also has a lot of repair people. Um, so en- entropy and the forces against entropy is a, a theme that Philip K. Dick returns to a lot. So I think he admires or likes people that are fighting against that in some way. So people that create or repair is, is something that he's attracted to. These people often tend to be working class. That doesn't tell you that he's a Marxist per se or anything like that. But it does show you where his, his sympathies tend to lie, I think. So anyway, moving on, we've got Robert Children. He's an antique dealer who works within a lucrative market for American antiques. So the Japanese in this novel, they love Americana, like Civil War weapons, Mickey Mouse clocks, so on and so on. And this is a very lucrative market that rich Japanese people are very interested in and children's a shop owner who caters to that. The fake antiques that I mentioned that Frank Frick produced 
are being fed into this this industry. Uh, his plot is basically about his desire to ingratiate himself with Japanese higher ups and have more status, uh, I suppose, um, which is linked to the first plot in some regard. Then we've got Juliana, who is Frank Frink's wife, who he's recently divorced from. She becomes involved in a relationship with a trucker in a kind of abusive relationship, and she goes on a tri- trip with him to meet Hawthorne Abington. He is the author of a book that exists within the novel called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. It's illegal in German-controlled areas. I'm not sure if it's legal in the Japanese-controlled areas and tolerated or whether it's just legal, but regardless, it's very popular. It's an alternative history where Germany and Japan lost the war, as in our reality. That explains like how, how it could have happened and so on it's not exactly our world there are small differences like within in the grass supplies heavy roosevelt doesn't um, continue on lead america through the war there's somebody else that takes over so it's similar to our world but so we've, we've basically got three histories here we've got our world the world of the novel and the book within the novel the last character is nobosuke tagomi i'm not sure how you meant to pronounce that first name, so I'll just call him Tagomi from now on. His plot revolves around a meeting that he's arranged with a guy from Europe called Baines, ostensibly about plastic mouldings or something like that, but we know from early on that this is a cover and this guy's got something else planned. And Tagomi is kind of an unwitting intermediary in a meeting between Baines and high-ranking Japanese government official that's linked to political plotting in Germany. Um, the in the novel Hitler's got syphilis and is off like in an infirmary somewhere uh, so somebody else is the chancellor they die early on in the novel and there are various factions within Nazism vying for power so there's some political plotting going on there and that's what this this meeting's about so sorry if that was too long but given that there's quite a lot of characters and different plot threads uh, in this book I thought I'd had to kind of lay them out to some degree so we know what we're talking about so this is a podcast about utopia so first thing I want to talk about was utopianism in this novel so I think this is something that is certainly explored in the book primarily through the grasshopper lies heavy and I think this is book is used to talk about the power of utopianism it's explicitly described as a sci-fi book within the um, within the novel there's a clear idea from various characters that this is this alternative world the idea of an alternative world is an alluring one and also that it's a powerful one that's why it's banned that's acknowledged in the novel there's a nazi guy who's reading it who talks about the power of it and he he recognizes the power of cheap fiction um and i think that is something that philip k dick is trying philip k dick i think was always kind of uneasy about his his position and how science fiction writers were viewed or more, more how he was viewed he was very taken by the fact that academics in france took his work seriously so i think there's a partly it's about that kind of um anxiety about how serious he's taking him and he's talking about you know, how powerful science science fiction can be and i think there's an idea there that uh, something doesn't need to be high art to be political genre fiction can be political and perhaps has more political potential because it can be a mass medium because it can reach more people which is what's happening with this book the grasshopper lies heavy it's kind of a, a sensation despite being banned and like everyone's reading it either outwardly or they've got hidden copy somewhere so there's an there's an idea i've talked about before and hopefully something that's come across in previous episode which is that sci-fi is always about the present explicitly sci-fi novels or just you know utopian dystopian texts they are they're about the present in some way they're a way of thinking about the present they're a way of critiquing the present 
borrowing a phrase from a guy called Darko Sivan, they give us an imaginative framework that has the effect of estranging our reality from us. It helps us to see our reality in a new light. This is what is happening with The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Juliana, uh, she talks about what The Grasshopper is, what it's about. And she says, he told us about our own world, this, what's around us. He wants us to see it for what it is. So I think The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is kind of showing us that idea of what science fiction is and what it does. Like within the terms of the book, Juliana recognises that this book is about, despite being about an alternative world, it's really about about the world they're in and seeing the world that they're in for what it is. So I think it's kind of an affirmation of the utopian drive there. Obviously, this is a kind of weird postmodern thing going on here. Like, so you've got a text within a text and that text is kind of about the text that it's within there's also the I Ching that appears a lot in this book which is a Chinese divination fortune telling system that I don't really understand all the characters use it it's like I don't know you throw coins or something or you throw sticks and then the lines you get direct you to certain passages within the book and then you you interpret something from that so a lot of the characters use that within the book to try and interpret events or decide what they're going to do next. It's revealed within the book that Abbotson used the I Ching to write The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. So the I Ching wrote the book effectively. And Philip K. Dick apparently actually used the I Ching to write this novel, The Man in the High Castle. So yeah, there's another level of kind of weird postmodern level there with like the I Ching and various texts within text. I think when you say that postmodern, people tend to think of authors that are authors that I personally haven't really been able to connect with, but authors that are experimental with form in some way. So people like Burroughs or maybe Pynchon. I don't really know those authors at all, but that's what I understand about them. I don't know how right that is, but Philip K. Dick thinks postmodern in a different way. Like it tends to be more in the content of what he talks about than the form that he delivers it in. Like he's still delivering it in a, even though his plots can get pretty crazy, they don't tend to be presented in a way that's inaccessible, like experimental in form. It's more the content. I don't know. Perhaps that's something to return to in later books. But anyway, yes, I think there's an affirmation of the utopian drive going on here. There's a scene think that's very explicitly about that there's a scene where there's a character explaining to Wyndham Matson, who he owns the firm that Frank Frink works at it's not particularly important who he is but in this scene this character is explaining to him how the grasshopper lies heavy lays out what would have happened in this alternative world and how it could have realistically happened so you know if Roosevelt survived he, I think he's assassinated in, in the weather book so if he'd survived the assassination and this could have happened this could have happened blah 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 um, with utopia, you always have this... Like, if you talk about utopianism or talk about utopian ideas, you always get realists coming back to you in, in inverted commas, right? So you always have this thing of naivety versus realism, of utopia being a dream thing for like people who are not willing to engage in, in reality. And this scene strikes at the heart of that. So Wyndham Matson is laughing at the alternative world that this, this woman explains to him. And he he explains to her like the inevitability, again in inverted commas, of the superior forces of Germany and Japan winning. But we obviously have knowledge of our actual reality, which provides a different context to the scene and a different tension between this idea of utopia and reality or like naivety in reality. Because we have this knowledge, because we know that what this woman is describing to him isn't ridiculous because it, it actually happened, albeit in a slightly different form in our reality, his inability to see 
possibility or like to see the possibility of difference looks stupid within the world of the novel he perhaps looks like a realist but to us his his inability to accept that something different could have happened looks stupid so it's a realist that looked like the idiots so he is trying to depict i think the ability to see the fact that the world we live in is uh the way that society constructed is based on contingencies that it could be different that there is a possibility of change he's trying to depict that as a strength i think and there is also this idea of fiction as being a portal to alternatives. So Tagomi at one point actually slips into another world, the world of the grasshopper um, or our world. I'm not sure which one, but he's in a world where Japan and Germany lost the war and he he goes into a restaurant or something and there's a load of white people sitting on all the stalls and he tries to enforce his his racial power to get one of the whites to give him a seat which they don't in their world he is the one who is 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 seen as beneath them so he faces racism in response so there's a shifting of perspective there to show how superficial these positions of power that seem immovable actually are like they shift very easily there's also a question in this book of how do you make utopia i think it's difficult as an individual i think it, one of the things this book is depicting is this idea that with big systems like how do you as an individual make a difference that's intensified in this world when you're working within a particularly twisted system that's nazism there's a very important moment in the book where to go me towards the end he takes responsibility for uh, frank frank gets arrested they they know he's a jew so he's going to be sent back to Germany. He's going to be executed. Tagomi is given like a paperwork, a piece of paperwork that they normally would sign because he's arrested within Japan. The Japanese need to sign off on it. That's normally a formality. But Tagomi decides to take individual responsibility and not follow through with that uh, formality. He decides to take this individual act to take responsibility and he refuses to sign it. So Frank Frank is released. I think it's a very important moment. He takes this, as one very small individual, he makes this decision not to play his part in the system, not to play these games of power that are depicted all throughout the novel, not to follow these unspoken rules about how how these systems and the people within these systems of power interact with each other, the games they play to, to get things done. He decides not to engage in that, not to sign it. I think that act of empathy, that act of rebellion is a vital vital moment for dick empathy is vital for philip k dick i think something that again something we'll return to in later books is that empathy for him is really the defining feature of what it is is to be human so this is an utopian act in a way this is a a way of getting to utopia is to refuse to engage in a system and make an individual ethical judgment. But there's also the suggestion that you can't always do that that you can't always make this ethical decision there's a suggestion that you have to take a piecemeal approach in some way. So the plot that's going on in the book, uh, the different factions of Germany who are trying to take power. Goebbels is the guy who ends up initially taking power. Heydrich is one of the other other candidates for taking power. Um, there's a section in the book where they talk about all the different like pluses and negatives, I guess you'd say, of the different the different factions of power who could take control. All these people are obviously depicted as being like awful, horrible people, but it's like, it's all about which one is less twisted and awful, which would be the best for us. Heydrich is depicted as being one of the worst people that could take power, but he doesn't support Operation Dandelion, which is a plot to 
unleash a nuclear attack on Japan and uh, invade Japan. They don't want this to happen. This would be obviously be terrible. It would be terrible for the Japanese authority. So they're in a position where they have to, where they may have to help Hydric, who is in some ways the worst option, come to power in order to prevent this horror. So that places them in a compromised position. And there's an idea that with this deranged system this deranged ideology of nazis you're always going to return to that moment anyway because the party still exists the factions still exist the twisted thinking is always going to lead you back to horror so what you actually need you need to change the system you need a total change rather than this like piecemeal approach but you're being forced to make these compromised decisions anyway so like why bother if total change is the only thing that is really going to ultimately get you to where you need to be well i think what philip kiddick is saying in this novel is you can only make a choice at each moment like there's a process there's a sequence and i think there's something there's something valid in that idea it's also like this idea that it's true that progress is often accomplished sequentially you know step by step and certainly i think utopia should be seen as a process but that can very easily slip into this anti-utopia acceptance of things as the way they are like this politics of you know let's not go too far and appeasement we can only go like bit by bit we can't really you know we can't really go too far when actually the possibilities are far greater so so yeah i think there's something valid in that but i also think it's something problematic in that but again you you can only make a choice at each moment that's what Tagomi does making an ethical decision as well but that's also what these other people are being forced to do they're forced to make a choice at that moment and they make the best one that they can so what else is this book about authenticity i think we mentioned in time out of joint the difficulties of distinguishing between the real and the fake is a perennial concern of, of dick's I'm not going to talk about it too much because I think I talked about that a lot in the previous one, but I'm going to just, just mention a bit, a little bit. So Wyndham Matson, the, the character we've previously mentioned, there's a bit where he's got two lighters. One was owned by Roosevelt. The other one is just a lighter. It's just a, a fake. They both look the same. He asks his mistress, can you tell the difference between these two? Can you feel the historiosity? The answer is obviously no. There's no mystical plasmic aura around it, I think is, is what he says. He says the whole thing's a racket. So Civil War guns is one of the things that's sold by these antique dealers and Wyndham Matson's company produces fakes. He produces these fake Civil War weapons. He says whether a gun was in a famous battle or not, is it's in the mind, not in the gun. It's your knowledge that it's been in the been in the battle that makes it have been in that battle, which he's, he's right to some degree. But he says that he then tells the woman that this lighter is the one that was owned by FDR. This was the real one. And I know this because I got the certificate and he shows the certificate. But obviously he fails to pose the inevitable question, which I think the novel is expecting you to ask, which is how do you know that certificate isn't fake? I think in part that's to say something just about the bullshit world of, of art or these, these fakes and what creates value. What creates a painting's value is like knowing it only becomes valuable once someone can say it's produced by a certain person. Its value can be manufactured in some way. So it has a faintness about it. But this is, again, a more general question about authenticity in a world where we have mass production, we have a proliferation of, of copies, 
We have TV, which is producing copies in a, in a less literal way. And it's again tapping to this idea that reality is in some way losing substance, losing something of, of value, like mass production and, and this production of copies is, is compromising reality in some way. But again, if you want to hear more about that and you haven't listened to the first episode of Time Out Joint, I talk quite a lot about that there. So I'll leave that there. So moving back to the antique. So yeah, the Japanese love this Americana. So there's a list of some of the stuff that you know he he brings out to show collectors like Mickey Mouse watch, butter churn, Civil War posters. This is just a collection of stuff. Like it's pulled out of its context. These things don't connect to each other in a meaningful way. They are shorn of their meaning. These are objects that have just become curiosities to the colonizer. There's something of a role reversal going on here because Americans are in the role of the natives selling their authentic wares, in inverted commas, like duping tourists. And they are being duped because we find out a lot of these these um, antiques fakes being produced to feed the industry. And these dealers are kind of semi-aware of it or like turning a blind eye to it or at least sort of pretending to themselves that they don't know. And this is, again, partly about capitalism, what it does to art and objects, the fact that value is stake. And regardless of whether these antiques are genuine or not, the value is no longer in what they do or how you use them. It's an abstractive value. And there's a, a flatness, a faintness that you get as a result of that. But it's also about the relationship of the colonised and the coloniser. So we're reversing this position of putting the Westerner and their cultural art artifacts in the position of, of the colonized and it what it part of what it does is it highlights how crass this fetishization of native products is you know like when you you go somewhere and there's there's this like, obsession with the genuine of having something authentic which like our mass-produced culture can't can't give us anymore so we like buy some handmade stuff by like a native american or something like that because it gives us the because it feels authentic in a way that um in our mass-produced culture is lost in some way but of course as this novel is showing that authenticity we do that's still it's still part of the capitalist system so it creates a market and that means that people are producing producing fakes to feed that market so that authenticity itself is a, a product it's manufactured it's it's not real that authenticity is what's being brought and that's what happens when you strip away the cultural meaning of these objects and turn them into products you're producing your culture for the gaze of the colonizer there are two layers to this even. So children, I've got a quote here of when he's trying to sell some stuff to a Japanese buyer. He says, I'm getting in a New England table, maple, all wood pegged, no nails, immense beauty and worth, and a mirror from the time of the 1812 war, and also Aboriginal art, a group of vegetable dyed goat hair rugs. Again, that's like all just stuff. And as if he's listing it like as if a table or a mirror has the same is the same as Native American art. There's another level of colonization there, like <laughs> selling both these things as if they're American. Obviously, the Americans colonized Native Americans, and now that's somehow American. That's somehow the same thing as the a, a table or whatever. As if there's no problem with equating those those two things as being the same. And the book explores this relationship between like the colonizer and the colonized. I think primarily between between children, this antique dealer, and a young modern Japanese couple called the Kurosawas. As a as a young couple, they're less they're less prejudiced than the older people in the society tend to be. They invite children to his flat. They're trying to treat him as an equal. But he, he notes the fact that because he's an American and because he and his countrymen lost the war, their culture lost the war, they were they were crushed by the Japanese 
when he goes to their flat and there are American objects all around him, it's within all those objects that this guy collects, This the fact that this relationship is there. He calls it loot piled up by the conquerors. And it's quite a nuanced way it's dealt with, I think, because the Kurosawa's interest in American Kana in Americana is part of a genuine attempt to make a connection. Now, he really does respect um, American culture. He is trying to reach out and connect with children as an equal. Because children is a terrible racist, he is unable to see that. He misreads almost everything that Paul does or says. He can never see what he's actually trying to do. But I think there is something problematic that this novel shows you in that this genuine, in this genuine attempt to reach out and this real respect of other cultures, there is also an appropriation of other cultures, but also that there's still something of value in that attempt, even if it's it's misplaced. So I don't know. I think of it as being like someone who's really into Japanese culture, like anime and video games or something, and then they see like a Japanese person and they want them to be their friends because, do you know what I mean? They're turning them into a tool of their interest in some way rather than treating them as a person which is kind of what's happening here within this world. I think children is, is right in some way, one of the few times that, that he's right, that you can't really escape this master-slave dynamic that's inherently a part of the colony, that is in all these objects, that's in the relationships and the way these objects are exchanged within the colonial system. So, yeah, it's quite a complex thing. There's still there's still this thing whenever you discuss the culture like he's he wants to talk about the culture of children he talks about american novels he talks about his love of blues music there is both something genuine and i suppose you could say utopian in it this attempt to bridge a gap and connect with someone and treat them as an equal but there is also something problematic in it and that can't be escaped so i think it's quite a nuanced nuanced way it's dealt with uh, i quite like that aspect of the book Another thing this book does quite well, I think, is the, or another subject it deals with quite well, is the is power and race within the within the colony. So there's quite a nice depiction of the way that systems of power seek to perpetuate a feeling of inferiority in whoever's being dominated. And in the case of this novel, it applies to the colonized, it applies to race, but you could also apply this to gender relations, class struggle, and so on and so on. So there's an idea throughout the book that the idea of inferiority is being absorbed by characters in some way. So the guy who's trying to persuade Frink to start his own business to create American jewellery, Frink is sceptical and he says it's been years since he's produced anything original but he can copy accurately as hell. And this guy says to him, you know what I think? I think you've picked up the Nazi idea that Jews can't create, that they can only imitate and sell. Middlemen. I think this does happen. This internalizing of the idea of what society constantly keeps telling you that you are, even if you resist it, even if you don't realize it's affecting you. Uh, it reminds me, like recently, I saw somewhere I don't know where it was on Twitter or, or something. There was a, a woman who was talking about how she'd been approached to be interviewed for a TV program or, or or a film or something, and she she passed this guy off, and he, she recommended she thought she wouldn't be good at it. Basically, she wouldn't be good for it. She recommended um, some men for him to go and talk to. And this person who was making the film, I don't know whether that was a man or a woman, but they came back to her and said. Every pretty much every woman I've approached has turned down appearing on this and recommended men to me. And I really do think that you are the best person for what I want to speak to you about. And 
other people have told me that you're really fantastic and you'd be great for this and she realized like yeah this subject is I really do know about this I really am knowledgeable about this she said that she'd realized that she'd kind of internalized this idea that she couldn't be an expert and she'd unconsciously like passed it off to men as all these other people had done so this this does happen this in, internalization of i think that might have been something we talked about black panthers in the previous episode i'm sure that was something mentioned in the book that black panthers talked about like people constantly being told like, what they are and internalizing that idea and that happens in this book so how how does this happen this book shows shows that if first of all it shows how people come to identify and resign themselves to power there's a lot of like say what you want about those japanese but they're not as bad as the nazis which is true but they're still a racist state they're still oppressing these people and they're still complicit with nazis in some way like you get this bit where frank recalls an exploitative landlord who's been he was put up you know partitioning rooms making them really tiny not repairing stuff rising rents and the japanese executed him for profiteering he says it's a credit to the incorruptibility of, of the Japanese officials. And, you know, you do get people doing that, making concessions for power. Like, okay, well, they might have done this and this, but, you know, they did do this thing and that was good. And you know, they did this for me and they're not as bad as those other people. Like, people tend to make excuses and that's what people do here. But it's also that the other thing is that it's those in power who set the rules. I'm not just talking about the literal rules, the laws you live by. It's also the social rules, the unwritten rules of how you're supposed to act. And they're particularly hard to follow if you're in the position of the colonized and these rules are not part of your native culture. Um, so in the in the book, it, now uh, Japan, I think, has a more formal culture. I'm not an expert on on Japan or, or Japanese society. And I'm sorry if any of this is playing into racist stereotypes about Japanese people. So like, please feel free to tell me if it is. But I think it's generally understood that they have a, f- a more formal culture than we tend to have in the West. I don't know if that's correct. And to us, it feels like it's full of, or certainly in the book, and I think it can too in, in the real world as well, it can feel like it's full of like this very subtle etiquette that's difficult to comprehend. Like it's filled with code about knowing not so much what you say, but how to say it, like how you're supposed to respond to different people. You would get all these stories about like business deals breaking down because some of like really some perceived slight that people didn't even know they were making. And again, I don't know how much that's like a stereotype but like it, it's not even necessarily that it's full of subtle etiquette it's just that because it's n- not one we know we don't see it like our culture is probably full of just as many of these silent rules but because they're natural to us we're not even like conscious of them being there it's only when someone doesn't abide by them they kind of impair it like insane or like completely beyond the pale and the way they're acting but anyway that's in this book it's explored a lot through Tagomi. like he's thinking about how to make very subtle insults just in in the tiny way he does something and even if this is a stereotype the general point that's being made still stands which is that they as in the people in power set the rules and you have to try and match them and we see that in the anxiety of children as i've pointed out before he's not a sympathetic character uh, he's a racist. He he both hates and admires the Japanese. He feels inferior and superior to them at various points. There's a weird bit where he's like cutting down racist assumptions about Japanese people. But he said, 
We called them monkeys, these civilised bandy-legged shrimps who would no more set up gas ovens than they would melt their own wives into ceiling racks. So he's like, how could we have called these civilised people monkeys? But he's also like one of them bandy-legged shrimps. But he, so he's he's full of these, these contradictions. He admires them and wants to be respected by them, but he also hates them. He's a racist who hates Japanese, but even when he's hating them, he's the way he thinks, obviously his thoughts are written out in the book, they're written in the way that the Japanese speak in the novel. So again, he's internalised that. I think some of the other characters do this actually, a bit, actually, like they speak in a, like they speak in a way that someone, a Japanese person who, did, who didn't speak a language fluently would structure their sentences. I was trying to think, like, is this racist? Like the way, I, I don't think it is because if you've ever tried to learn another language, something you'll find is that you tend to, if you're not very good at the language, you tend to structure the sentences what you would in your native language. Like you directly translate words into your sentence structure. If you you may have noticed that people from certain countries tend to make similar mistakes if they're not fluent in a language, and that's because they're they're thinking in the structure of their own language, which is what the Japanese people would be doing in this book. But of course, the question is, what is the right way of structuring sentences? And in this case, they're in power. So the colonizer's way of twisting your language, that is the right way because you don't correct the colonizer. You do not correct the person in power. And if you want to be part of a system in power in any way, you want to sound like them. So that becomes the correct way to think and uh, talk. And that is what Truman has done. He's internalized that. And he's always anxious about, you know, will he do the right thing? He talks about have to make the proper act, the proper utterance at every moment or you know, am I going to disgrace myself like an animal? You've probably experienced that in some way, even if, like, if you're a working class person and you've been in a setting that you typically don't feel comfortable in, like a, a setting that's, you know, a middle class, high class setting, some formal event, they sometimes make you feel inferior. Like, some, if you're a working class person who, I don't know, goes to Oxford, like, I haven't been to Oxford, I don't, I don't know, but, you know, they have these weird traditions and that are stupid and, like, meaningless, but you don't, understand them and the point of them is to make you feel like you don't belong and to make you feel inferior and that's what they do here when children make a mistake in etiquette or perceives that he does he says they are so grateful and polite and i the white barbarian it is true so he's internalized this idea that he's inferior the inferiority is enforced by the fact that you're having to play by a game you have to play a game that you don't have the rule book for they understand it and you don't you can't win by playing that game because all Children's this thriving mess of confused hate and conflict, and all he can do by trying to be a part of it, he just ends up like lashing out with racism to other people. Like there's a bit where he delights at being pulled by. I'm, I'm quoting the novel, so I'm sorry if he's he says a chink driver, and he talks about how he he loves the feeling of the vibrations. Like, it's really horrible the way he loves the feelings of the vibrations of being pulled by this person that's lower than him, and like the vibrations give him like pleasure. So you can't win playing that game. You All he does is end up internalising those ideas and hating himself and pushing that out to other people. It feels like I've been talking for ages. Sorry if I've been going on too long. I'm not sure exactly how long I've been talking because there's a couple of bits of this that I sort of recorded again because I wasn't happy with. So the time that's showing on here is longer than the time that the episode will actually be. So I don't know. But... When I started doing this, I said the Philip K. Dick episodes are going to be shorter, but it feels like this one's going to be almost as long as a as a regular episode. Hopefully not, because I think listening to me talk by myself for like an hour is too much. So sorry if this ends up being really long. 
please tell me if you think that I that this episode is too long and you think these ones should be shorter. Anyway, let's move on so that I can actually finish. So when I did Tom out of Joint in the first episode, I talked a bit about female characters in Philip K. Dick's novels, his misogyny, and I said it might be interesting to see whether there are more in-depth portrayal of female characters or more positive portrayal of female characters as you go through. Only the next level along, I think we do have one that's more positive, at least to an extent. So Juliana, she perceives the power of the grasshopper lies heavy. She recognises what it's doing. She recognises the fact that it's about about her world. And by extension, that this sci-fi novel or the utopia in fiction is about the real present. She's the only character to do that. Uh, in Tom of Durant, we saw how women could not have a revelation. They couldn't cross the gap to making a revelation, even when they had the information they had the same information as the men and they almost could reach that next level but they couldn't do it in this one juliana is the character that has a revelation so that that is more positive to some extent but she is also still pretty naive and easily manipulated though she does manage to kill a nazi assassin by herself so there is that also i think there's uh something valuable in the, the portrayal of the relationship between joe and juliana this abusive relationship joe exerts a kind of psychological power over her he exudes this vague possible threat, even though he doesn't often, towards the end perhaps, but he doesn't often directly like, threaten her and impose himself on her, but he, he does in a, a vague kind of implied way, like there, there could be a threat. And that's why she constantly feels afraid of him. It's interesting because the way he sort of, he imposes himself in such a way that he's just kind of there and she can't get rid of him, even though she's scared of him. And yeah, I mean, obviously an abusive relationship doesn't have to be physical. And I think this is something valuable in the way that this portrays an abusive relationship that's conducted through a psychologically abusive relationship there's still this thing in the book of women as children as we had in in time out of joint i'm not quite sure how to read this because there's a scene where frink is thinking about juliana like a child and he's talking about how she needs attention she needs validation but during this passage he's fantasizing about her seeing the jewelry he's made and how she reacts to it and he's imagining like telling her that he's a big successful businessman so the hypocrisy in that passage is clear it's clear that he's the one that needs the validation he's the one that needs her attention but this idea of juliana being a child is repeated so much throughout the book that i can't help but think that it's not just meant to be ironic obviously as, as i mentioned this is the fact that she's very naive and she's manipulated easily but there's literally bits where it says she's bunching up her fists like a child so i still think this is representative of dick's view of women in some way so we haven't left that behind even though we do have perhaps a more positive portrayal of a female character than, than in time out of joint so uh the ending there's not a great deal definitive i can say about the ending because it's very open-ended tagomi saves frank and has a heart attack i don't know if i mentioned before but tagomi doesn't know frank so this act of empathy he's made this is just this is just this is no one to him he doesn't know who he is but he still makes that, that choice nonetheless uh, anyway we don't know if he survives his heart attack Frink goes back to making jewellery. We don't know if he's a success. Children takes on the jewellery that Frink's making and starts trying to sell it with a, a genuine passion and finding a mission in producing this this new art. He turns down a deal to mass produce it and, in, in his view, like cheapen it. We don't know where that goes. Juliana makes it to the High Castle, which turns out to be a normal house, and meets the author. 
and we have the revelation that what the grasshopper depicts is true that's what the conclusion that they come to at the end the, what we see in the grasshopper is not fiction it is truth it exists so there's this idea that utopia you know is a, a place that actually exists that's something um that fashion Vieira talks about in our very first episode that what utopia does is it asserts uh, this other place is actually existing and that's what happens with this book so yeah i don't think there's anything to be drawn anything definitive to be drawn for the ending it's very open-ended and very open to interpretation that kind of fits with the theme of the book in some way with everyone reading the i ching and trying to they're having to make interpretations out of these vague things they're having to make decisions uh, they're not given clear answers they have to interpret and come to their make their own choice so that's what you have to do with the ending there's lots of stuff i haven't touched on i haven't really talked about nazism um obviously the idea that nazism is bad is a big part of the book but i thought that's quite obvious and hopefully you wouldn't have to make that argument so i thought i'd, I'd focus on other stuff although we are in an era where people say you know anti-fascists are just as bad as fascists or you know who the real fascists are anti-fascists so maybe you do need to make that argument i don't know but i'd rather not have to and there is some good stuff in there on like the horror of nazism it's the twisted logic of it the inevitability of its mad rush to destruction a final total holocaust is a phrase that the books uses there's also some stuff in the idea of relativism and evil not existing in Eastern philosophy and how you deal with that in the light of Nazism. Like there's a bit where Tagomi gets ill when he's listening to them describe the different leaders of the uh, potential leaders that could come to power and what they believe and what they've done. And he, he runs out feeling sick and he thinks he's going mad and he says, there is evil. It's actual like cement. Evil is not of you. All our religion is wrong. As I mentioned, there's a lot of stuff about the I Ching as well, which I just really don't know what to make of that stuff, so I've not said anything about it. But anyway, I hope that I've picked out some important and interesting themes. I hope you've enjoyed listening to me talk about this for far too long. If you have any thoughts on the ending yourself, any thoughts on the I Ching or the way the book deals with fascism or anything else, then please let me know. Email me, utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Tweet me at utopianhorizons and it would be cool to, you know, if anyone's got any comments or questions and stuff, it'd be cool to address them. So when I do the next episode, the next Philip K. Dick episode, I can deal with those, read out those comments or deal with those questions. Speaking of the next episode, again, now when I'm talking about the next episode, I'm talking about the next Philip K. Dick episode. So the next Philip K. Dick episode will be on Martian time slip. There will be other normal episodes before that comes out. But if you're wanting to read the next book ahead of the episode, then it will be Martian time slip. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. If you could give me a rating or review on iTunes, whatever you listen to this on, that would be very, very helpful in helping me to spread the word about this and make it bigger and better. So that'd be very much appreciated. I have talked for long enough, so have a nice Christmas. I will be back next year with more stuff, probably starting early next year with Bioshock Infinite, possibly have Ghost in the Shell soon as well. So that's some stuff there is to look forward to. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 